0: He writes in the recent Insight from TCW that failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Tad Ravel is the chief investment officer for fixed income for TCW, helping to manage more than $180 billion based in Los Angeles. Tad Ravel, thank you very much for spending time with us. What do you mean by this, that failing to prepare is preparing to fail?
2: Well, what we're speaking to is that there is an asset price cycle, there is a credit cycle, unless this is the first one that isn't actually going to be a cycle, we should expect that uh, the uh, relatively placid environment of the last seven or eight years is ultimately going to have its comeuppance, and that it's imperative that investors understand that strategies that focused on risk-taking and um, yield emphasis will probably have very disappointing results if, in fact, we are in the late stages of the asset price cycle, which we do view ourselves as as being.
0: So how do you respond to people that point to the sort of, I guess you would call it the disintegration of a connection between asset prices and growth in GDP?
2: Right. Uh, well, you know, that is uh, probably the most consequential Place that people ought to be looking in terms of understanding where you are in the cycle as we would put it the disconnect that what you alluded to the disconnect in which asset prices are so robust against the backdrop where GDP has been growing at very muted rates for a very long period of time suggests that there is in fact a disconnect uh, as you say between asset prices and income if you disaggregate asset prices into their uh, constituent pieces Obviously, what you have is equities, real estate, bonds, etc. And when you have this large disparity between asset prices and GDP, what you're really saying is that one or all of the following are true. P.E. ratios are being stretched, cap rates in real estate are very low, or bond yields and bond spreads are also quite, quite compressed. What it also means, of course, and just thinking about it in an equity formulation, if asset prices are high, if asset multiples or PE multiples are high, ordinarily, as enterprise multiples lift, so do debt multiples. If debt multiples are lifting at the same time that income and GDP is muted, sooner or later, you're going to have a debt servicing problem.
0: Well, then speak about this debt servicing problem in the context of low discount rates that were available at one time, but may not be available in the future.
2: Right, so to to a very great degree, maybe this also speaks to, to another kind of disconnect, I'll call it the central banker's disconnect, is that traditionally you think of capitalism this way, that when your labor and capital are efficiently configured in your economy, your profits are going to be growing, your wages are going to be growing, your GDP is going to be growing. That's just another way of saying that prosperity should naturally lift asset prices. Instead, what the central banks, in effect, have done over the course of this cycle is they short-circuited the process. They forced rates lower through quantitative easing, through zero rates, negative rates in Europe, and so forth. And by driving the discount rates down, uh, the result has been a, a surge in asset prices, but The surge in asset prices, it's not the case that high asset prices create the prosperity. The causation is completely reversed. And so now we believe you're in a late cycle type of environment. And ultimately, you're going to have to resolve this disparity, this wedge between high asset prices and low GDP growth against the backdrop of substantially expanded leverage in the system that was incentivized by these low discount rates that you allude to.
0: Well, does resolving this disparity, is that a diplomatic way of saying that we are headed for some real problems?
2: Uh, Yes. (laughs) <laughs> I guess you said it much more directly. That, that there's only one of two possibilities, as as the great Lord Keynes uh, put it. Uh, if a trend is unsustainable, then at some point it will stop. This idea that asset prices can permanently disconnect and continue it, um, or work in a, in a dynamic that's completely disconnected from the income economy, the wealth economy—that is what I'm referencing. It's it's absurd. So. Either we're going to get just a massive surge in GDP growth going forward – to uh, validate and justify the increase in asset prices, or in most, most probably you're going to have to see a reduction in uh, asset prices to uh, uh, correspond back to the GDP. And the mechanism by which you get there is probably uh, already being laid out in front of us. It's the Fed tightening, it's the quantitative tightening, as well as the actual rise in the overnight rate.
0: So does that mean that Tad Ravel is talking himself into a job of managing cash for a while?
2: <laughs> well, uh, that that's probably an unnecessary. Um Uh, extreme step although maintaining a proper level of liquidity is probably always a smart thing to do but in a late cycle environment what it really means is that you're supposed to recall what uh, Benjamin Graham said a long time ago that bond selecting is a negative art Uh, it may not be a negative art in the early and mid stages of the cycle when leverage is increasing and almost everything that you do Um, everything that you do from a risk seeking point of view tends to do rather well in the late stages of the cycle, you have to be very careful about not selecting assets that we would deem breakable in the sense that they're going to give you a permanent impairment of principle. And so that means that when you survey your allocations to things like high yield and in some of the more leveraged area of the corporate market is be careful. Uh, there are ways to continue to capture uh, yield premium, even in a asset price come up in spare market in in, uh, in risk, there are plenty of things that, that work out, but there's a lot of things that may be very disappointing in terms of where, um, where they end up.
0: Where do you believe you'd see the first indications of these problems? Would it be in, let's say, the leveraged loan market? Would it be in high yield debt?
2: well the um the places that are probably most vulnerable um, would be in the uh, part of the high yield market, particularly that part of the market that has been so overgrown with covenant light debt issuance and Although covenant light sounds like a sort of a technical almost obscure term, what it really comes down to is We're always supposed to remember that a corporate management has a fiduciary obligation to its shareholders, but a contractual one to its bondholders. So what that means is that a business can have uh, uh, good potential as a business, but without a properly constructed set of covenants for the bondholder, it's also possible for management to essentially uh, uh, spin those assets off to shareholders, pay uh, sell assets and, and pay special dividends, and essentially leave the bondholder holding the bag. So the fact that Covenant Light issuance is essentially off the charts, it's much greater than we've ever uh, ever seen it. It's a very um, imprudent form of, of lending, so you should expect that. When the Fed raises rates, it also strengthens the dollar and you start to see cracks develop in parts of the emerging market. We've seen that just in the last week with Argentina and uh, to a slightly lesser degree Turkey and maybe Indonesia as well.
0: Thank you very much. Tad Revell joining us as the Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW Group, helping to manage more than $180 billion. Global value. What is a global value investing perspective? Here to help us understand this is Thomas Russo, managing member of Gardner Russo and Gardner, They're helping to manage more than ten billion dollars of customer assets, based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He joins us here in our 11:30 studios. Tom, it is a pleasure to see you. Thank you very much for coming in. I want to jump right into it and specifically start about uh, talking about tobacco stocks because yeah. tobacco stocks. Let's leave aside for at the moment, uh, the, the products in terms of whether you are uh, for or against smoking and the uh, health concerns, many people have invested in these stocks because they have looked forward to what are, many we consider, rich dividends. Yes. Do you believe
3: that that's still a, a valid thesis? Well, it certainly has been over the past few for five or six years as rates short end on the curve have been so low and so people have sort of been pushed into equities in search for yield and they've had the highest uh, highest levels of yield um uh, and it's in large measure because up until recently they've they've lacked the ability to reinvest a lot of money in the business um uh, historically, um, uh, and, and the dividend yields 5% plus for uh, um, uh, Fillmore International, and roughly the same for Altria have attracted capital historically. So do you think that they are still attractive for people looking for dividends? No, I think the I think the search for yield actually has, has already sort of begun to reverse because the sh- the 2-year treasury yields close to 2.7% today and that's fully more than many public companies have as as their dividends and so it's adequate it's adequate to keep people away from equities they don't have to chase after equities just to get yield two point whatever it is is is, is, is close enough um, the issues with the, um, the the three areas that you cite tobacco and Beer and and uh, and banking is that interestingly all three of them stumbled and, and struggled today because they're going through a, a remarkable period of transition those are traditional old businesses you can't imagine anything quite as long-standing as tobacco banking and and uh, and beer um, but each of the businesses that we're involved with there have uh, new elements that uh, make the future seem more cloudy than, than the past. Um, oh,
0: okay, but, but, but just final question on, on tobacco yes. stocks, and then we can go on and talk about uh, AB uh, yes. InBev. Shares of Philip Martin International are down by more than a fifth yes. so far this year. As you say, they currently pay a 5% dividend. Yes. Um, is this a stock, in your opinion,
3: whose time has come and gone? No. No, it's a position uh, still uh, in in my portfolios. It's a a stock which evidences the expression at this moment that no good deed in life goes unpunished. Philip Morris has alone in the industry over the past five years directed over $2.5 billion of shareholder money to develop a a reduced-risk product, a, a, a cigarette substitute that satisfies adult consumers who wish to quit. Which are effectively half the community of smokers in the world over you know, probably 150 million people would love to quit, and and yet they haven't had something that worked. Philip Morris, after having spent invested two and a half billion dollars, um, has a product that works. And in fact, in Japan and other markets where it's rolled out, they now have close to 20 percent market share themselves uh, in in this in, in what was the tobacco industry. It's now split with. Combustible cigarettes and the product that Philip Morris invented, called the Icos, which is a non-combustible cigarette, and everything's moving along swell uh, up until a couple weeks ago. They had a stumble in the in the rollout of, of a new uh, a device that's attached to this product, and that caused some investor concern. There was a slowdown in the the, the cigarettes that go with that product, and the market became a bit uh, disenchanted with the near-term prospects. The long-term prospects are completely unaffected by this, um, as far as I can tell. And then on top of it, it's a a regulatory thing. The U.S. FDA has resisted allowing this product into the market despite the fact that it has helped nearly six million smokers around the world in the last two years alone quit forever cigarettes. And so um, we believe that that relief from the FDA will have to come because the product being adopted by millions of people overseas leaves uh, the US seeming a bit of isolationists as it relates to a product that has effectively helped people for the first time ever quit. Now that's one thing, that, and, and I think at five, 5% yields, at 13 times net income in this marketplace, the investments are in Altria, and Philip Morris are are quite reasonably priced, especially as I do believe that the product that both of them will share in will finally get uh, approved by the U.S. uh, FDA.
0: Thank you very much, Tom Russo. I look forward to having you in the future. Got to talk more about your uh, value strategy and uh, get your insight into what's going on in the beer industry. Because as you say, going through uh, lots of changes. Tom Russo is managing member of Gardner, Russo & Gardner, helping to manage more than $10 billion based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Well, if you've been scouring the quarterly reports of companies such as Netflix, Microsoft, or Google's Alphabet, or even Oracle, looking for how much cash they have held overseas, good luck. You won't find it. Brandon Kochkoden is a managing editor for Bloomberg News, and he joins us now to explain why. All right, Brandon, why aren't companies reporting how much money they have held overseas?
4: Yeah, I mean, the simple answer is they don't have to. Um, The the more complicated one is basically um, with the tax law changes, um, every company had to pay this mandatorily, had to pay this tax already. They, They can space it out over eight years, but they have to pay this tax on their foreign holdings. So cash anywhere in the world is basically fungible now.
0: Yeah. But why wouldn't they want to report that they had, let's say, brought the money back to the United States if indeed they did so?
4: And that's the question that um, tax experts we talk to are asking. Um, They're looking for you know changes in disclosure right now because they haven't gotten a lot of guidance from the IRS.
0: All right. So if the company doesn't bring back the cash from the United States, there's no way to know this
4: now. At least not from their quarterly reports. We might see it um, through other filings. Some of them are actually disclosing. I mean, we have an example in there from Google, I believe, um, that they they told us how much um, tax they paid. So from there, you can kind of back end it and and get a sense of how much they brought back. Uh, But it's up to them. I mean, otherwise, we're not going to know.
0: And what about other companies? I mean, I mentioned uh, Microsoft, Netflix, uh, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, as well as Oracle and Apple. They don't report this and in some cases i should just mention that it ha- it isn't something that's just happened correct
4: exactly so apple stopped last year at the end of their, I guess, their fiscal first quarter, whatever it was there back in October. Um, and then, uh, you know, the same thing, I think Cisco stopped a little bit earlier. Otherwise, we're seeing them stop at this first quarter reporting after tax law went into effect.
0: And what about other companies? Uh, are other companies like Coca-Cola, for example, are they still reporting how much money they have? Yeah, outside so that, the US? That's,
4: that's sort of the interesting part to us right now is, is seeing who's reporting and who isn't. So Coke and Pepsi both are, GE, Caterpillar both are, Facebook is some of the interesting things you get to see now is someone like Facebook. They actually have more cash overseas now than they did before, so it's not quite having the effect we thought it would. The question is whether just how much it matters.
0: Now the new rule uh, set a one-time rate of what, like fifteen and a half percent for the cash and eight percent for non-cash or illiquid assets.
4: Exactly, and and they have that's on what they were holding. They have eight years to pay that, though. They can space it out. So there's sort of that um, opacity right now in in terms of when they're paying it. And that's something we're all going to care about because it's going to have an impact.
0: So this would then make the actual cash amount that is listed in the quarterly report a total, obviously, for the entire company, and it would be treated the same as if it was in the United States?
4: Yeah, exactly. So what what they held overseas, that's what's going to get taxed at those rates for this one time sort of um, you know repatriation holiday, if right. we want to call it that. Um, otherwise, now it's all being treated the same. The questions are becoming now. Um, around if if we're going to see, you know, what the global minimum rate's going to be and and if this is a permanent situation or if companies are keeping it overseas just in case something changes and and that there might be an advantage down the road.
0: Because previously they had to pay, what, a a 35% tax if they wanted to bring the money back into the United States.
4: Exactly. And so that was always the rationale for why I was saying, quote, locked overseas. You know, like we see we see it in the article we have tax experts that are that are saying you know look we tried this before in 2004 we didn't see a ton come back you know we're doing it now expect it to be sort of tactical and don't expect this all to all of a sudden you know come on to uh, us accounts
0: and yeah. one of the reasons why investors would look at the cash position of a company is that when you do a total valuation of a company's stock, you want to back out or at least you want to make note of how much cash they have on their books, because that would then be something you could deduct from the actual share price.
4: Yeah, of course.
0: All right. And uh, any word from the Internal Revenue Service as to whether they're going to make this uh, kind of filing, uh, you know, mandatory in the future in order to sort of see or check to see whether the law itself was was effective?
4: Everyone we've talked to has said that there's, you know, the, the problem right now is the lack of guidance from the IRS. So there hasn't been anything to that effect yet.
0: All right. Well, thanks uh, for the guidance. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, Brandon uh, koch Cotton is uh, managing editor for uh, Bloomberg News on the story that uh, Apple, along with a variety of other companies such as uh, Netflix, Microsoft, as well as uh, Oracle, uh, not reporting how much uh, money or cash uh, they have uh, on their books uh, outside the United States. Go public or get sold. Well, there may be uh, an advantage to uh, being acquired. Sandy Miller is the general partner at Institutional Venture Partners, IVP, based in San Francisco. And Sandy joins us now to explain what's going on in the world of technology and initial public offerings and mergers and acquisitions. Sandy, thank you very much for being with us. You know, one of the things in preparing for this, I was taking a look at SNAP, which was a headline grabbing initial public offering. It came public at 17, it currently trades around $10 a share. Uh, That's a decline of a little bit more than 40%. On the other hand, MuleSoft was acquired by Salesforce.com in March of this year for a price of $5.6 billion. And also looking at the number of technology initial public offerings, I think there are about six that are currently trading year to date. Give us your overview of what is going on in the world of funding for uh, large technology companies uh, such as these, Sandy.
1: Sure. Well, first, it's a very healthy environment. The IPOs for for you, I'm looking here at U.S. technology companies, have really been working well. The last three that have gone Carbon Black, Smartsheet, DocuSign – all raised the range from the initial filing range, priced at or above the range, and have traded up an average of 40%, actually. uh, And that's consistent. There's actually been 15 U.S. tech IPOs so far this year, which is running well ahead of 2017, and they're up an average of 39%. The most prominent one, the biggest name of the group was Dropbox, uh, was an IVP portfolio company, uh, which has traded up over 50%. So deals are working. Um, It's not really that... Uh, a surprise because there's, a, there's great companies, there's a backlog of great companies that are expecting to see more IPOs. Um, they're benefiting from, obviously, deals perform and money managers are looking to add to the, these companies for, to their portfolio to, you know, as a form of alpha. And they're benefiting from a favorable regulatory environment because the JOBS Act, which went into effect several years ago, Has been expanded to include larger tech companies, Uh, and some of these new IPOs are pretty mature companies that that didn't meet the standards of the emerging market uh, qualifications for the JOB Act. But now they too, all the all the companies, not just tech, of course, but all the companies can can use the confidential filing and the the test-the-waters features of the JOBS Act, which has been a a great boon to the IPO market because it gives CEOs much more confidence that if they go through the process that it's going to be successful. Um, so I think it's a very healthy environment for IPOs. But one of the things that I wanted to mention really was the M&A market. You mentioned the MuleSoft uh, acquisition, happened to be one of our portfolio companies as well, the uh, very, very successful after going after a successful IPO. But in many cases, uh, companies are going to be acquired uh, prior to going IPO. And this isn't new, but I think you know people sometimes think uh, the M&A market, people buy when things are – prices are low or whatever, that it's going to be counter Cyclical to the IPO market, but just isn't true. It's been consistently the case that IPOs and M&A, certainly in the tech sector, cycle together.
0: Well, would app, uh, yeah. app Dynamics, which was purchased by Cisco, would that be an example?
1: It's a particularly vivid example. It happened to be another IVP portfolio company, the a uh, uh, very successful one. They they got to the They they took it to the brink. Oh. They they were required. Really, almost at the eleventh hour and 59th minute, uh, by Cisco, even though they had marketed the roadshow was going to be clearly successful, very well received offering. But Cisco just made a bid that you know you just couldn't say no to. I guess the, uh, but we'll see others. There are, you know two IPOs. I'm sorry, two M and A transactions this past week. Both are companies that could have gone public. And uh, Recruit uh, bought Glassdoor, the you know online uh, review for employees company. Company for 1.2 billion, and Walmart bought Flipkart, the big uh, Indian e-commerce giant for, well, they paid 16 billion for 77% of the company that you know implies 21 billion dollar uh, company value. Those are two companies that could have gone public, but are being acquired instead. And we'll see. We'll see more of that once companies get on uh, either on file or gearing up publicly on file or. Uh, are preparing for an IPO and have made a confidential filing, and sometimes companies announce that they've made a confidential filing, you're actually allowed to do that, um, The uh, they become it kind of becomes a catalyst for the big tech companies that probably have been tracking them for a while to move in and and make an acquisition if it makes strategic sense for them.
0: Do you see more untraditional types of money-raising activity? And I'm thinking, for example, of Spotify, which went public but not in a traditional way.
1: Yeah, of course, that wasn't money-raising for Spotify because they did a so-called direct listing. Uh, They didn't need the money. They didn't need the visibility of an IPO roadshow because the company was so well known. It been, you know, it's an 11-year-old company that's very prominent, very, certainly very uh, extensive, you know, consumer base, and the, uh, so they did a direct listing. I don't think we'll see a lot of it, but I'm glad to see it because I'm all for. Alternatives for companies, and we just see the Hong Kong market is getting uh, more lively. So obviously, that's going to be more for the Chinese companies. But our Xiaomi going public plans in uh, uh, in Hong Kong, so I think it's good to have alternatives. But the direct listing uh, doesn't raise any money, um, but it does get you get, get you public. I, I don't think it's that big a savings. You know, the reason why people want to do it is there's jealousy over who gets the gains from the first day pop of an IPO. That's really what it's all about. They're not so much looking to save the underwriting fees, they're looking to redirect the pop of the first day to their own existing shareholders rather than a new set of hand-picked investors from an investment bank you know, currying favor with their best clients.
0: I want you to get specific, if you can, right now, because I know mm-hmm. that you have a lot of. Uh, well, you've got a lot of history in in the uh, in the industry, but the telematics and and the logistics industry. I wonder if you could just comment on what you see what you see happening.
1: Sure. Well, it's an area that I've personally been pretty involved in. We backed uh, uh, we backed three companies so far. Fleet Maddox, right? Road. Pardon me.
0: Fleet Maddox was one of them.
1: Yes. Uh, I was on the board of Fleet Maddox. We backed back at Road, um, which you know, was acquired very, very successfully. The uh, uh, Fleet Maddox, which went public and then was later acquired, and most recently a company called Keep Truckin' based here in San Francisco, which has sort of turned the business on its head. And it's a it's a tr- rather than a system that's kind of imposed by the The the, the fleet owner is actually uh, a telematic system and uh, uh, combined with a lot of other functionality that the truckers have adopted themselves. And then, you know, much like most technology today, you know, it starts with the users, then the company uh, picks up on it. So it's it's gotten very, very broad uh, positive acceptance from the actual truck driver community. So I think it's an area really ripe, you know, this is a massive amount of our our whole industry moves by truck Uh, it's a very old-fashioned industry the information available is remarkably limited historically and it's really ripe for uh you know technology improvements and people like keep trucking and others are are providing that
0: thanks very much for being with us sandy miller is general partner for institutional venture partners ivp based in san francisco and you can follow them at ivp on twitter